recently a um, larger-than-life political figure, a man running for the presidency of our nation, when asked if he had ever repented of sin or even felt he needed to ask God for forgiveness of sins, said this, and I quote, I'm not sure I've ever asked God's forgiveness. I don't bring God into that picture. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. Later in another interview where he was asked to clarify those comments, he, he said this, I try not to make mistakes where I have to ask forgiveness. I think repenting is terrific. But why do I have to repent or ask forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? I work hard and I'm an honorable person. Now, interestingly enough, this same larger-than-life political figure, and you know who I'm talking about. I'm just trying to remain politically neutral here, all right? This larger-than-life political figure later, or maybe even earlier, during various speeches, he said this, The Bible is my favorite book of all time. The Bible. Nothing beats the Bible. Well, apparently, despite it being his favorite book of all time, this man hasn't read the portion of the Bible that we are looking at today. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. Today we'll begin reading in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 2 of chapter 2. So we're picking things up from where we left off last week. So a little recap is necessary. And you remember that this is a, a letter, an epistle written by the Apostle John. It was a circular letter, probably written to the churches of Asia Minor. And the problem was that there were some schisms. There was divisions in the church. And these divisions were probably brought on by an early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a worldview uh, which creates a false dichotomy between what is physical, okay, what is material, and what is spiritual. Saying that the physical, the material, is simply in and of itself evil. And the only thing that's really good and honorable is the immaterial, the spiritual. And so out of this worldview of Gnosticism, there developed a heresy in the early church called Docetism. Really one of the earliest, if not the earliest heresy that emerged in the early, early church. And this Docetism was a denial of the full humanity of Christ. Now the Gnostics also believed they had secret esoteric knowledge. Gnosis is the word that Gnosticism comes from, which is the word for knowledge, and they had some sort of secret esoteric knowledge that allowed them to reach a more enlightened or higher spiritual state. So John began the gospel by asserting the deity of Christ and also the incarnation of Christ and proclaiming, and he says we are proclaiming an open truth, not a secret truth, but an open truth, a truth that they had, had seen themselves, they had materially touched themselves, and the truth was Jesus Christ. And the message that John was proclaiming wasn't some philosophy or some moral idea. The message was itself a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, the word of life. Now John proclaimed that if one is to have fellowship with God, true fellowship with the Father and the Son, well then he first must have fellowship with him, with them, the apostles. With us is what he says there. The apostles teaching, in other words, so if you don't embrace the fundamental, foundational doctrines of chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you can't have fellowship with the Father. You can't truly know God. So with that recap, let us now stand as we read 1 John 1, 
verses 5 through 2 of chapter 2. And remember, we are in a series, we're calling this series, How Can We Know? Because ultimately what John wants us to have as we go through this gospel is assurance. Assurance that we truly know God. We stand here at Harbin's when we read God's word for the sermon because we honor it as the infallible, inerrant word that it is. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that are encapsulated in just this small portion of Scripture we're going to look at today. And Father, we love your word, and we want your word to go forth. And so, God, I ask that you grant me a voice to speak this morning physically, but also mentally, spiritually, a voice to speak the truth according to what your word actually says. So, Lord, keep me from error this morning. Give me a mouth to speak. But give all of us in here, myself included, ears to hear what you have to say through your word We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A little word on the structure here of this section. Last week I did the same thing. I gave you a little bit of background as far as what the structure of this passage of Scripture is. And I think I need to do the same today so you can see the flow of John's argument. First of all, uh, verse 5 is an introductory statement. It's very important, but it's an introductory statement. And then verse 2 of chapter 2 is sort of a concluding statement. In between those two verses, verses 6 through verse 1 of chapter 2, there is a very self-evident pattern. There's a symmetry to what John is saying. So he starts each statement off by saying, uh, I'm sorry, he states a false concept. That's how he starts off. He states a false concept with the words, if we say, if we say. And then that false concept is followed by a statement that such a concept is not true. It is a lie. In some sort of way he says it's a lie. And then that is followed by an antithetical comment that also starts with the the word if that refutes the false comment. Okay? So you see it there in the the passage here. Verse 6, if we say, and he goes on to to state a false concept. And then he says that that's not practicing the truth. It's a lie. And then he says the opposite of that, verse 7, but if we walk in the light. Then we see the same pattern in verse 8. If we say... And he says that the truth is not in us. But then in verse 9, if we confess our sins. So there's the second pair. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. 
And he goes on, and, and in this case, in verse 1, John inserts a little pastoral comment, but he keeps the flow, the pattern going. He picks it right up there in the middle of verse 1 where he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So we see this pattern, and the first set, verses 6 and 7, deal with one problem going on in the church, and the second set, verses 8 and 9, and verses 10 through 2, 2 verse 1, deal with another problem that was going on in the church. So that's why there's two points, really, in your notes today. But John begins his whole argument with verse 5, an introductory statement that's very vital, essential to the whole argument he's going to make in the rest of this section. So look at verse 5 with me. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So this is the message. And he says, we, that we proclaim. Again, John is referring to himself and the other apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message they have heard from him. He's reinforcing the ideas that he's already asserted earlier in chapter 1. Namely, that he has witnessed these things with his eyes, with his ears, and with his hands. And now with his mouth... He's proclaiming these things that he's heard directly from the Lord Jesus. John, in other words, was not inventing some sort of message. He was not deriving it from some sort of spiritual, esoteric experience that he had. But these are words from the physical Lord Jesus Christ that he's now bringing to the churches of Asia Minor. Words that they need to hear in order to overcome some serious errors that had creeped into the church. And what is that message in particular in this portion of Scripture that John wants them to hear? It is this, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The contrast between light and dark is one of John's favorite themes both in this book here, this epistle of 1 John, but also in the gospel of John. So what does it mean that God is light? Well, John is not saying that God is physically electromagnetic radiation whose wavelengths fall within the optical range of the human retina. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is he's using language here to help us grasp at the character of who God is. So what is John saying? He's saying, number one, that that it's in God's nature to reveal himself. As it is the property of light to shine, so it is the nature of God to reveal himself to sinners like you and I. Light means that this self-revealing God is, is infinite in his perfections, transcendent in his nature. It means that he is the blazing source of life. He is the shining spring of knowledge. He is the resplendent revealer of truth to mankind. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Light means that he is perfectly pure and unutterably glorious. It means that he is righteous, that he uncovers sin, that he exposes wrongdoing. He brings into the open what has been hiding in the shadows. Light also means that he is powerful and victorious. When light and dark meet, it's never a battle. Light always overcomes darkness. Therefore, he is the one who guides us into paths of victory. He is the one who makes evil flee. He is the one who turns night into day. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Light ultimately means that our God is holy, holy, holy. So how now should we live if we know, if we are in fellowship with this holy and pure and glorious God? How can we know that we know this God? Well, that's why John wrote this little letter. So in verse 
6 and following, he begins to lay out some tests for us. So we read in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So my first point this morning is simply this. Because God is holy and pure and glorious, those who truly know him cannot be indifferent about their sin. Those who truly know him cannot be indifferent about their sin. If we say we have fellowship with him, fellowship, that that word connects us back with the verses we looked at last week. Remember John's words about fellowship in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The goal of the gospel is to bring us into fellowship. Fellowship with the Father, but also fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so here John picks back up on this theme of koinonia, fellowship. And essentially is saying, if you think you have that type of partnership, unity and oneness, that type of a relationship with the Father while still living in and practicing sin... You got something else coming. Living in and practicing sin is what walking in darkness means. Darkness is the opposite of light. Apparently the Gnostics and the Docetists were teaching that so long as they were enlightened enough, so long as they had some sort of ethereal spiritual union with God, what they did in the body didn't matter that much. In other words, if you have Jesus in your heart, it doesn't really matter if you sin, right? Well, John shoots down this foolishness and rightly shows us that anyone who claims to know the one who is light cannot live in a manner in opposition to the light. Just this week, I had an interaction with a man who, who, when shown that his attitudes and his actions were contrary to the word of God, said this. Well, I know Jesus in my heart. I have my own personal relationship with him, and you can't judge that. It seems, friends, that Gnosticism is still alive and well in the church today. So let me paraphrase verse 6 in our evangelical vernacular. If we say we have Jesus in our heart while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is a form of Gnosticism still alive and kicking today in the church, whereby people who profess to be Christians refuse to hear and submit to the clear ethical teachings of God's word because they have subjective feelings about Jesus that overrides everything else. This leads to antinomianism, and simply that's a big word for a person who rejects the commands of Scripture. But any teaching that proclaims that we can know God while willfully, unrepentantly practicing deeds of darkness makes that person a liar. Verse 6, we lie and do not practice the truth. Our deeds, our actions, are on the witness stand. And the jury of an onlooking world is judging them. And those deeds are testifying, testifying to the veracity of our faith. Our deeds are the star witnesses in the trial that is determining whether or not we are truly who we say we are. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our deeds testify to who our Father is. Deeds of light 
testify to the God of light. Deeds of darkness testify to the prince of darkness. So because God is holy and pure and glorious, those who truly know him cannot be indifferent about their sin. And now the antithesis to that is simply this. Instead, through the blood of Jesus, they confidently pursue fellowship. Through the blood of Jesus, they confidently pursue fellowship. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. John is not saying that we are saved by walking in the light, but that walking in the light, living and doing what brings honor and glory to God, is the evidence that we truly are saved. Ephesians 2, 8, you guys know this verse very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should, listen to this language, walk in them. So what is a walking in the light? It's summed up right there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. A disciple, a follower of Christ, is a man or a woman who has a new life and accordingly walks in the light. Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 12, says this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the consistent word spoken by the apostles. We're going to go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The Apostle Paul again in Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now notice something that John does here in verse 6. He is denying that those who walk in darkness have any sort of fellowship with God. But then look at verse 7. He doesn't say what we'd expect him to say. Look at verse 7 again. But if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, and you expect him to say God at that point. Because he just said God in the other verse, the, the parallel verse that was contrary to what he's saying here in verse 7. So you expect him to say God, but he says we have fellowship with one another. So these are parallel statements, one positive, one negative, one canceling out the other. And so we see God substitute fellowship with with one another for fellowship with him, God. It should catch our attention. This is profound, and, and John is saying simply this, that if you claim to have fellowship with God, if you claim to have fellowship with God and you don't have fellowship with other believers, then your claim that you're making of having fellowship with God holds no water. Fellowship with other believers is not the ground of our fellowship with God, but it sure is doggone good evidence of it. And this is borne out in this whole letter, this whole letter that first John, first John, first John two, verse one, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So if we walk in the light, we will inevitably, inescapably love and have fellowship with one another, as 1 John 4.20 also says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What a beautiful and gracious and God-glorifying and salvation-confirming thing it is when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell in unity. To love one another with brotherly affection. To outdo one another in showing honor. To contribute to the needs of the saints. To show hospitality. To be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. To look not only to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. To restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. To bear one another's burdens. To put on, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How beautiful And salvation-confirming truth it is when you see that in a church. And I'm happy to say how God has shown this in many ways, even just this week at Harbin's, and it's been such a blessing. And it's been awesome to see brothers and sisters loving each other the way John calls for us to. But what makes such fellowship even possible? Well, we must be brought into the light into Jesus, the light of men. And the only way we can be brought into the light is to have a bath. That's right, a bath. Okay? But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to come into the light, you've got to have a bath. I'm sure other parents in here can relate to this. Maybe you can't relate to this, and this says something about us, all right? But have you ever, ever, like, been in a hurry, and you get your kids ready, and and, and, you know, you're in the house, and you're really not looking closely, and maybe this, things are not lit very well, and you get out of the house, you get in the car, now you're in the light of day, and you look over as you're driving, you're halfway to where you're going, and you look over, and your kid's clothes are either dirty, or they've got, like, food stuck to their face, or something, like, oh, my goodness, I mean, you, you're embarrassed that you left the house that way. Okay, when you begin to have more than one child, young folks, that will happen frequently, okay? You just get out of the home, and then you're in the light, and you realize, oh, Look at him. Look at her. Well, guess what? As we come into the light, we have to be bathed. We have to be cleaned. And we are cleansed through the blood of Christ. Dark, dirty rebels like us must be cleansed in order to be brought into the light. And Jesus did and does that cleansing through his blood. The phrase here, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, would have reminded John's readers, as it should us, of the Old Testament sacrifices The sacrifices that were for the purpose of ritual purification. What John is proclaiming here is that the the new, he's proclaiming the new covenant realities that are spoken of in Jeremiah 33 verse 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. But this cleansing is not the, the temporary cleansing afforded in the old covenant by the blood of bulls and goats. But it is an eternal cleansing from the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of the new covenant. The blood we will recognize as we take 
the Lord's Supper later this morning. The verb cleanse here is in the present active indicative tense. And you're probably saying that means nothing to me. It simply means that it's the ongoing action. That's important for us to see. This is an ongoing action. We can therefore infer that those who walk in the light are not perfect and are in need of continual, constant cleansing. And this leads us directly into the next teaching that John is confronting in today's text. Because God is holy and pure and glorious, those who truly know him cannot be in denial of their sin. Not only can we not be indifferent to sin, likewise we cannot be in denial of the continual presence of sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Many of those who held to this Gnostic worldview felt that they had reached a level of knowledge and enlightenment that allowed them to cease from sin. And John will have nothing of such foolishness. And so the last two antithetic tests here address this issue. And they do so with increasing intensity. The second expanding upon, and I believe serving as sort of an exclamation point to the first. So what I'm saying is this. Verses 8 and 9 are addressing the same thing as verses, verse 10 through, through verse 1 of chapter 2. And that's why I'm rolling them into one point for the sermon this morning. So when we read in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, and then we read in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, I do not believe that the teaching that was going on there, I do not believe that the false teachers were, were, were saying that they didn't have a sinful nature. I don't think that was the heresy they were dealing with. There is a heresy that, that deals with uh, people not believing were born with a sinful nature. I don't think that's what's going on. Instead, I believe they are teaching Christians. These folks were teaching that Christians, I should say, could reach some level of spiritual knowledge that would enable them to escape the corruption of the body and therefore no longer commit sin. The consequence was that these folks no longer felt any need for further moral striving and pridefully considered themselves to be more enlightened and more free than others around them. You can see how that would destroy fellowship. This has application for us too, friends. There are many in our churches today who are not walking, maybe, maybe they're not walking in complete denial of sin like the Gnostics were, but, but they're not walking in a consistent way with the light in the fact that they are unwilling or unable to see their own sin. This is evidence in the way we apologize sometimes. And I do this as much as anyone else. We apologize like this sometimes. I'm sorry if my actions made you feel like whatever. That is not a confession of sin. Okay, what we should say, and I'm thinking here of husbands and wives most of the times, but this happens in other relationships as well. What we should say is, I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. We convince ourselves that our sin is anything but sin. We chalk it up to a thousand different things other than sin. And then we further convince ourselves of our own holiness by filling our lives up with the next spiritual fad, the next spiritual activity, something that makes us feel or appear more spiritual, more enlightened. And all the well indwelling sin goes unchecked in the heart. I'm afraid there's too many of us who are little Gnostics at the heart. We think we've arrived at some sort of spiritual plane and we don't actually go fishing for the deep, deep sins that reside in our hearts. The evidence that someone is walking well in the light 
is that he or she sees his or her sin more clearly every day. I believe this with all my heart. The more mature we become as Christians, the more aware we become of how wretched we are, and therefore, the more glory God gets for extending grace to sinners such as us. Let me say that again. The more mature we become as Christians, the more aware we become of how wretched we are, and therefore, the more glory God gets for extending grace to sinners like us. Too often our sin is is like the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. We see the surface of it and we dismiss it as insignificant when a massive potential for destruction resides below the surface. We must see that unrecognized and unconfessed sin kills fellowship on all levels. That's why James tells us, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why is it so hard to, to say to our spouse or our child or our neighbor or our coworker or our brother and sister in Christ, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Why is that so hard? Well, number one, it's hard because we can't say it if we actually don't see our sin. You can't say it if you actually don't think you've sinned. You don't see it. Number two, it's hard to say when our pride doesn't want to own who we are. When our pride doesn't want to own our sin and our pride doesn't want to own who we are, present tense, we are sinners. Don't, em- don't embrace the view espoused by some that it's wrong to call yourself a sinner if you're a Christian. Instead, we must take the same posture the Apostle Paul took where in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, present tense, the foremost. That's the same posture we must take. Now, it's true that if you are in Christ, you are a redeemed, renewed, and freed sinner. But until we are absent from the body and present with Christ, we should proclaim with Paul, Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet we go on after recognizing that to praise God that indeed we are, the not guilty verdict has already been declared, it has already been pronounced, and we are progressively becoming who we already are. So we can likewise say with the Apostle Paul just a few verses later in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to hold both of those truths and Know that there's tension there to know that we are, yes, free from condemnation, but we are still in these bodies of death. Fighting and battling. And if we fail to recognize this balance, we fail to see this truth, then we'll fail to battle our sin and put it to death, which is what the Apostle Paul calls for us to do. And in the process, we will, according to verse 8 here, deceive ourselves and the truth will not be in us. And worse than that, according to verse 10, if we don't recognize our sin, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Woe! Remember that Satan is not only the father of lies, tempting us to deceive ourselves. Remember this, he's also the accuser. Hopefully you learned that as we went through the book of Job. He is the accuser. And if we think we've arrived at some point where we no longer struggle with sin or we rarely sin or we blindly go around thinking that we're just not in need of daily confession of our sin, then according to verse 10, 
we make God a liar. We join in with the accuser. We become like Satan. We refuse to believe God's clear teachings in his word that we are indeed sinners in need of daily, continual forgiveness and new mercies every day. Therefore, when we enter into that sort of posture, the truth, verse 8, which is the word in verse 10, is not in us. Because if God's word's in us, we can't live that way. If God's word is in us, then guess what? We will live in a posture of daily repentance of sin, confession of sin, recognizing that we need his mercy every hour, every minute of every hour, every second of every minute of every hour. So here's the crux of the matter. If you claim to be a Christian, yet you do not see yourself as a sinner in need, who needs to repent and confess of your sins regularly, then you may not actually be a Christian. You may not be truly abiding in fellowship with him. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The person who walks in the light, who has fellowship with his brothers and with God, is a person who confesses sin regularly, who admits it, who owns it, who hates it, who turns from it while acknowledging it before the Father and asking forgiveness for it. So this leads me to the last portion of the second point here. Because God is holy and pure and glorious, those who truly know him cannot be in denial of their sin. Instead, through the blood of Jesus, they confidently pursue forgiveness. It sounds like a dangerous thing to, to confess acts of darkness before the one who is unbridled light. But not for the true believer. It is fearful, but it's not dangerous. The danger of approaching the bright holiness of God and thus incurring his white hot wrath has been dealt with by the Son. He is faithful and just. Now this language of him being faithful and just hearkens us back to the Old Testament uh, proclamations about God's character, the, 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 the most important of which is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where God declares his character to Moses, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is faithful and just. But how is he just? How is it just for God to forgive sinners? A holy God can't just overlook sin, sweep it under the proverbial rug. He is just because he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And how does he do that? He cleanses us the same way he cleanses back in verse 7, through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It is done by the means of the blood of Christ. The sacrificial death of Christ on the cross to absorb the Father's wrath for the sake of his people is the cleansing we need. Therefore, God extends mercy and grace to sinners and is thereby not overlooking sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 explains this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus God now becomes, as Romans 3, 26 declares, he is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now just before 
John gets to his final if statement, which is found in the second half of verse 1. He has this great little element of pastoral sensitivity right there. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. I love these little phrases, these little passages in Scripture where you see the pastoral sensitivity of the apostles. John is not saying, as we've already seen, that Christians can achieve a level of sinless perfection. But instead, he is admonishing us to live as children of the light, even though we will sometimes sin. And that's what he continues to say here. He says, but if, and here's the next if statement. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. What you see here is the ongoing work of Christ on our behalf. This cleansing of verse 9, just like the cleansing of verse 7, is in a verb tense, which means an ongoing, continuous action. The blood was shed once for all, for all God's children at the cross. It was done. It was finished. Redemption was accomplished. But in time and space, that redemption is being applied continually, day by day, as new mercies and grace are poured out upon sinners while we work out our own salvation through confession and through repentance. Hebrews 7 speaks of this ongoing work of Jesus. Hebrews 7 verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He's continually making intercession for you and I right now. Interceding for all of us. All the sin we're even dealing with right now as we sit right here. The sin I'm dealing with as I mess up as I preach. He's interceding on our behalf. And that's a glorious thing. And so our high priest is performing this purification before God continually as he applies the blood to each one of our sinful situations. So in Hebrews 4.16 we read that we can come with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so this high priestly act of Jesus Means, as John says here, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation simply means that he has appeased God's wrath that was kindled by our sin. What does this mean, though, that he is the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world? Well, there can be a lot of discussion around this verse, but let me, but to me, it's quite simple, okay? Here's what he cannot mean, okay, and what I believe he cannot mean. It cannot mean that God's wrath has been fully appeased for every human being or else the whole world would be saved and there would be no need for any man to go to hell. For what we need salvation from is the wrath of God. So what does it mean? It means that this message of John's is for everyone. Not just the Jews, not some special enlightened class of people like the Gnostics. But for everyone, everyone from every tribe and language and people and nation, Jesus' sacrifice is offered and made available to everyone in the whole world. There will be some who hear it and reject it, and God's wrath will remain on them. And there will be some who hear it and believe it and thus come into the light, into the grace that was purchased for them. And I think that's what we see in the passage that Todd read earlier this morning. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Listen to verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that, it may be, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In a minute here we'll partake of the Lord's Supper as we close the service. That same political figure that I spoke of at the beginning also said this about communion. I don't ask God for forgiveness, and this is a quote, but when I drink my little wine and have my little cracker, I guess that is a form of asking for forgiveness. And I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed. And then he went on to say, I think in terms of, let's get on with it. And let's just make things right. Oh, friends, do not come to this table that way. If that's your attitude about the Lord's Supper, please stay seated. This ordinance that the Lord Jesus gave us is serious. It's a powerful proclamation of the gospel. It in and of itself, has no power to forgive you. But it points to and proclaims where the true power is located. In the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who gave his broken body and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And then he rose again triumphantly because darkness can't defeat light. Light will always win. So let us pray And then we'll go to the table before we conclude with a song. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. Father, I pray that you would cut cut me to the heart along with everyone here in this room. There are a thousand ways that even though perhaps we may not be Gnostics at heart, we are like Gnostics in the sense that we're unwilling to deal with our sin. We deny it in a different sort of way. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to confess even before we come to the table. Right now, confess to you and ask you to cleanse us, to make us vessels of righteousness. But, Lord, there may be some here in this room who can't even say that because they don't have fellowship with the Father. Perhaps they've never, never approached the Father for forgiveness of sins. They're like this political figure. Perhaps they have some sort of idea of the Christian faith that if you ask Jesus in your heart, well, then everything else is okay. So long as you have some sort of subjective experience. So, Father, I pray that you break through those false and damning views of Christianity and bring people into the light this morning. So, Lord, I ask you to do this. I cannot do it, nor can anyone in this room. It can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to work in us as we close with the Lord's Supper and we have a time of response through song. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.